Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jemena Canales about the famous debate between physicist Albert Einstein and philosopher Henry Bergson over the nature of time. So welcome to the show, Dr. Canales. We're so happy you could join us today. Your new book, or recent book, is called The Physicist and the Philosopher, and it tells the story of the debate between Albert Einstein and Henry Bergson over the nature of time. Yes, thank you, Samantha. Thank you for having me on the show. Einstein doesn't really need much of an introduction, but, but why don't you give us a little bit of background about these, these two men, especially the philosopher Henry Bergson? Um, great, thank you. Wonderful question. Um, one, one of the things that excited me when I ran, ran across this material was to realize that I was dealing with a philosopher who in the early decades of the 20th century was more famous than Einstein. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of the reasons why he was more famous had to do with his theory of time. So we, we, we hardly know who, as you say, we hardly know who Bergson is today. Uh, and it was a complete surprise as a historian, and I had been a historian for a while before I, I um, ran across this material, to realize just how read and how famous he was read by prime ministers. <laughs> he was seen as somebody who had revolutionized philosophy. He had been accredited with saving Europe. There had been people who had threatened to commit suicide, but were saved by Bergson's works. And he cited over and over and over again um, um, in the first decades of the 20th century. What was most interesting for me after that uh, was to learn that the reason we don't know about him today was largely due to his debate with Einstein. And this is a debate that took place in 1922 in Paris on April 6th. And it started the decline of his fame, mm -hmm. and it also started the decline of the philosopher as a public intellectual, particularly French philosophy, uh, and obviously in something that would later be called continental philosophy. So this moment, this day, April 6, 1922, features in my book as a sort of turning point in which we have, we see the rise of science and the decline of philosophy as disciplines that both of them seek to uncover the nature of truth. Hmm. Could you kind of just say a few words about each man's conception of time and, and how he came to understand it that way? Yes, so one, one easy way to summarize you know, Einstein's theory of relativity is that it's, a, it's based on technology. You know, it explains how the universe works based on how clocks worked at the time. And, uh, and it's still the way that they work today. So basically, for Einstein, time was what clocks measured. But that definition was sorely unsatisfactory for, for Bergson because he asked uh, what I think is a more profound question, which is, why were clocks built in the first place? So unless you had a prior notion of time, clocks, he said, would serve no pr purpose. He said they would just be bits of machinery that we would use to amuse ourselves. So the whole gist of Bergson's philosophy of time was something that was prior to how it was eventually measured scientifically, measured by clocks, measured 
technologically, and it had to do with things that mattered uh, rather than with um, uh, just facts and measurements. So things that called our attention mm-hmm. to certain events. We use clocks because we want to go places. So Bergson wanted to ask, you know, about those those aspects of um, that lead us to use clocks, that lead us to build clocks, that lead us to pay attention to clocks. But he was therefore not satisfied with a sort of technical and scientific uh, explanation of time. What was kind of the heart of their disagreement, or what what sparked this? I mean, is it because Einstein's theory of relativity predicted very non-intuitive things about time. Um, um, that was that was part of part of the debate. Uh, it had to do with how Einstein used um, um, some examples. Einstein wanted to revolutionize everyday notions of space and time, and he talked about train carriages, and he talked about space travelers who aged less less rapidly than the ones that stayed on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Bergson was irritated by this sort of what he thought was an unwarranted expansion of science into realms that were really symbolic and that left behind, you know, the results of the scientific formulas. But the immediate um, spark of the debate um, was a sentence that Einstein said during his face-to-face meeting with Bergson. And we are in 1922, and this is a time of immense tension between France and Germany. They had been recovering from a very, very um, uh, painful war. And Einstein came, um, some people thought, as an ambassador. Other people thought that his, his, his intention to go to Paris was unnecessarily provocative. And he had been invited primarily by philosophers. The um, um, he didn't go to the Société de Physique to the to the um, um, to speak to physicists. And he gave three talks. And in one of those talks at the Collège de France, Bergson was in the audience. And as I said, Bergson was more important than Einstein at the time, and he was known for his theory of time. And here came this physicist from from Germany. And he said the sentence. He said, the time of the philosophers doesn't exist. And you can imagine, you know, here he's been welcomed uh, by a community of philosophers, even though he's been rejected by the community, largely rejected by a community of physicists. And he says this in front of a senior philosopher who had um, uh, played very important diplomatic missions, had met with of President Woodrow Wilson had been read by prime ministers uh, from Europe to America and was basically provided bedside reading for a huge amount, a huge number of um, of people who just loved books. You wrote in your book um, that according to Einstein, philosophy had been used to explain the relationship between psychology and physics. So. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that what he meant by the time a philosopher doesn't exist? It's it's just relating those two times that do exist? Exactly. So a lot of people before Einstein, before Bergson, had noticed that psychologically we assess time differently than, than, than we do, would do 
um, in terms of physics, mm -hmm. right? When you're running in a treadmill, time seems to go more slowly when you're doing something <laughs> boring. Uh, there's that psychological aspect. Um, but what Einstein said, so, so both of them agreed that these divisions existed and that posed no mystery. The problem was that Einstein then, then took one more step and said, these psychological um, um, conceptions of time have no um, uh, existence in reality. They're ideas and they're misconceptions. And my theory uh, had, had, had proved just how off the mark they were. And Einstein was um, um, dealing in his theory with very, very fast uh, phenomena. Um, it, it basically made sense when we considered it in terms of the speed of light. And he said those lessons really showed that the psychological conceptions are nothing but empty ideas. And therefore, there is no overlap between physics and psychology. Psychological assessments are wrong, and they should be set aside, and we should just stick with the physical definition of time. And this really irritated uh, Bergson because his whole philosophical program um, uh, was very much concerned with pointing out the connection between the physical notions of temporality and physics in general, um, and psychological assessments. And it was that overlap that he um, thought should not be overlooked, and that was was a territory that um, needed to be considered and not just cast aside, you know, as erroneous and therefore irrelevant. So can you talk kind of about, um, as the debate progressed, whose side the public generally was on? Did they agree with the physicists or the philosopher? Yes, that, that, that's a great question, and it is a long story. Uh, so, my, so my book actually centers on 1922, but there's a prehistory, uh, which goes back to the 19-teens, when uh, Bergson first encountered relativity and, and started already to think about it. And then it goes on um, all the way to the science wars, to the late 20th century. So it is a long story. And I'm, my intention is not to take sides and say, you know, Bergson won, Einstein won, but, but to do exactly what you're asking me uh, to do, to trace historically how did people perceive uh, each of these two, two points of view. And what I, what I noticed was that um, af after their, their meeting, uh, Bergson published a whole book called Duration and Simultaneity that um, expanded on some of the issues he had told Einstein face to face during 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 the meeting. And Einstein then read the book. In his personal journal, he said that he thought that the book was accurate and actually grasped um, the essence of relativity theory. But a few months later. Einstein received the Nobel Prize. And during the award ceremony, the presenter of the award said that he would not be receiving the award for the work that had made him famous, which was the theory of relativity. Rather, he would be receiving it for the photoelectric effect, which is something that is extremely important for science, and yet does not juggle the, the public's imagination in the same way that relativity had. 
and um, Einstein just sort of ignored that aspect. And in his uh, speech to the to the committee, he he talked about relativity. But this is one of the most en- you know enduring curiosities of scientific history. You know, why did Einstein never get uh, um, the Nobel Prize for relativity? And it's very clear the presenter during the 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 award ceremony, he said, it's due to to what Bergson said in Paris a few months before the award was given. So um, then I went to the archives and I found that Einstein wrote many, many letters trying to dismiss Bergson. And at one point he settled on one one sort of message, and he he said that Bergson had gotten his physics wrong. And there's a lot in Bergson's book that is not about physics. In fact, uh, on many occasions, Bergson was saying, my point is not about physics, and I'm not contesting uh, the results of science. I'm making a philosophical argument. But this was eventually ignored by Einstein, although in his journal he did say that he thought that Bergson understood the theory. In later letters that he wrote to people in Spain, uh, to supporters in France, he he stuck to that message. Bergson got his physics wrong. And these letters were, uh, some of them were published because Einstein was famous enough by then or controversial enough that, you know, if you if you received a letter from him, um, um, it, it was pretty certain that you would, you know, try to share it with um, with as many people as you could. So, so it is a complicated story. As I said, I don't take sides. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in the question. I think they both have, you know, uh, an incredible, um, uh, insightful things to say. And I see this episode rather as a sort of a, a moment in which we have a division between the sciences and the humanities. That is something, um, uh, that persists, persists to this day. And we have the rise of the authority of the physicist as somebody who is allowed and is allowed to, to talk about time rather than, than philosophers. Kind of on that topic, maybe could you talk generally about the way that philosophy influences physics and the other way around, or even the way physics influences our common sense? Is our common sense kind of like impervious to physics discoveries, or do they eventually work their way into the lay wisdom about the world? Um, those are great questions, and uh, and I do I do not aim to say when I you know when I tell the story of the fight between Einstein and Bergson that there was nothing philosophical about Einstein's work. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, uh, uh, there are many philosophical influences that we can trace on it. Um, uh, Ernst Mach, for example, and Bergson himself always said that that there were hidden philosophical assumptions in Einstein's work, which Bergson traced back to Descartes. So Descartes is this, the, the great um, uh, thinker of the mechanical, and um, uh, and he basically thought that Einstein was taking Descartes' insights one step further mm-hmm. um, uh, in in his theory. So there 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 the but one 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 clear way of thinking about the relation between physics and philosophy is to think about physicists and philosophers, right? So to go back and attach it to the actual people, the actual institutions, um, and and that I think gives us uh, um, some insights that we lose if we just talk about physics and philosophy in in abstract 
in abstract terms. Um, about your second question about the role of common sense and and lay lay wisdom, that was one of the things that irritated Bertson when he started reading so many of these uh, accounts of relativity, w which you know said things like. You know, if you're in a train carriage at the dining room, you look at your plate and the plate looks round, but somebody who's outside uh, for for that person, the plate would look oval. Mm -hmm. And this is from Bertrand Russell or Arthur Eddington, um, the astronomer who made Einstein famous uh, by planning the this eclipse expedition. You know, he said that uh, he was basically... Six, uh, uh, about six feet tall, but that for somebody who was traveling at a different velocity, he would really be three feet. And this got printed in the New York Times shortly there, shortly after um, uh, the results of the expedition were announced. So Bergson thought that this was a, um, um, an unwarranted extension of the role uh, that physicists were playing as public intellectuals, mm -hmm. and that these stories had to actually be thought of more critically. And he urged, and this, this is something that I find, found quite amazing, he actually urged his readers to go back and look at the experiments of relativity, primarily the Michelson-Morley experiment, and to go back and read the formulas which had first been created by Hendrik Lorentz and not Einstein, and to start to think about the gap between the experimental results, the formulas, the t, the the variable of t for time in them, and to be a little bit critical about how these were extended through these stories and how. Um, the pretension was not to do great physics, which Bergson always agreed that Einstein was doing, but to revolutionize everyday notions of space and time. So that was the rub there. As you were writing this, did you ever think to yourself that it's possible that they weren't even talking about the same thing, the same notion of time? Um, uh, yes, and... And um, and th this was this was a sort of it was a failed conversation. Uh, um, there there was, um, and most of it you know the the most of it took place through others, other people, allies were enrolled. Einstein um, uh, enrolled various allies that defended him, and who they in turn wrote against um, against Bergson. So how much? Um, um, but th this is one of the things that, as, as historians, we rarely do, right? We want to have uh, a vision of the world in which there is dialogue and understanding and meaning, and and history sort of has a rational basis and um, um, and can be retold in a rational way. And I believe that there are many instances in history where that is not the case. And in fact, it's people miscommunicating. So I wrote a book about miscommunication instead of actual people understanding each other. So miscommunicating and and uh, and not being precisely rational in how they're considering arguments, but being emotional, being uh, political, personal aspects all play a role in these debates. So would you say that 
there are two schools of thought about time now or or who's prevailing in most people's current understanding of time, the physicists or the philosopher? It's definitely the physicists. I mean, if people want to learn about time, they go and read Stephen Hawking or um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And um, and the debate between physics and philosophy and science and the and the humanities continues to 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 rage on. Um, the both sides are stereotyped in ways that are very similar to how they started to be stereotyped after Einstein and Gerson met. You know, one side is accused of being uh, irrational and vitalist and putting an undue um, um, emphasis on the human, and another side is accused of being arid and uh, rational and uh, mechanical and forgetting the human aspects of, um, of of time. But the authority, there is no doubt that my book is about the rise of the authority of science and that they, in a sense, took the torch of talking about time for the public from the philosophers. And that moment, April 6, 1922, is one of the, the 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 moments in which we see the shift happening. Uh, Stephen Hawking very fam- famously has said that um, uh, philosophy has nothing to contribute to our understanding of the physics of time. Before he, it was Hilary Putnam, a very um, um, renowned philosopher at Harvard, who also said that philosophy had nothing to say uh, with respect to, to time. And Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson has. Um, also said that philosophy is, is, is an obstacle. Um, so, so I think there's no doubt that the authority has gone to, towards the, the physicists. But that was not the case in the early part of the 20th century. It was just the contrary. And one of the things that I like to do in the book is to, to give a little bit of a long durée history of science and um, to see how recent it is that we give to science this um, role. Were either of the two men religious? Because that's a third school of thought is it's that sometimes butts heads with science and philosophy right. and, and definitely has its own thoughts about time. Um, yes, and and um, um, they, they had very complex relations to spirituality and to religion. And um, both of them wrote and said a lot of things about uh, God. Both of them were Jewish. And um, the debate became entangled with with religious identity, in in a sense. Einstein famously said that, you know, God does not play dice with the universe. And then um, he was taken to task by Niels Bohr, who said, you know, we shouldn't be talking in this way in a scientific uh, um, debate. But none of them basically wanted to fall back to a theological notion of of temporality, and um, they bo- they both had the very original and very different ways of understanding time um, than than had been advanced um, earlier. You know, for example, in the book I go back all the way back to Saint Augustine and uh, how. Um, in the fourth century, he basically said that, post this, he said, you know, what is time? St. Augustine is very famous for having wondered what time is, and he said, if somebody asks me, I don't know, if 
they don't ask me. I know what time is. So St. Augustine, in a sense, oh, you know, it's a, it's a very early moment in the fourth century where we already start having this division between, you know, if we think about time, we're suddenly embroiled and we don't know how to give a, a good answer. But in our sense and our en- embodied um, um, experience of time, there's no question what it is, right? That is, that is, that is, a, an, you know, in terms of uh, the history of religion, that's an important moment. But it's not, neither Einstein nor Bergson had that, that precise view. Uh, as I said, they both have had very complex relations with the institutionalized religions of, of the time, and they also had very uh, distinct spiritual um, views about um, the world. Would you just say a word about maybe a little bit about your background and and what sparked your interest in this debate? So I'm a historian of science, and I my first book uh, is titled "The Tenth of a Second: A History." And initially, I focused on the late 19th century. That book um, deals with a period from the 1850s to the first decades of the 20th century. And it's also very much concerned with time and how time was measured physiologically, how it was measured by astronomers, how it was measured um, uh, in factories and industry. And uh, coming from the 19th century, that's where I ran across this this document, and I was really tracing Bergson. And I I was trying to figure everything I could about his philosophy. And I read this document, this April 6, 1922 transcript, and in that meeting, in that document, Einstein was there. So I had this, I have been a historian of science since the time I was, I was 20, 21 years old. I had been doing this for many years, and I had never heard of this meeting between these two famous intellects. And here I had the document in my hands, and it was a, a clear opportunity to try to figure out uh, what they were, what were they doing together, what did they talk about, and um, and and I started looking further and realized that most of the well-known intellectuals of the 20th century referred back to this moment as constitutive for how they were thinking about the world. And these people included Martin Heidegger and uh, Maurice um, Merleau-Ponty, and it went on and on. It included uh, famous physicists like um, the Becquerels. It also uh, included Percy Bridgman, uh, uh, um, a physicist at Harvard. And I traced it, continued to trace these references to this moment in many times the technical writings of uh, philosophers and physicists all the way to the 20th century to the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze and before that Gaston Bachelard. So um, I also realized um, uh, quite quite painfully why this, this history hadn't been retold. And uh, and I, I mentioned that a bit earlier and one of the reasons why it became clear to me that uh, nobody had written a book-length account of this meeting was because, to date, 
some people are still afraid of bringing in back some of the objections that Bergson made to the theory of relativity in fear that it opens the door to some sort of irrational philosophical thinking that is no longer based on or not just based on you know clear measurements, clear results, um, time as measured by clocks, but rather you know a whole other way of understanding time which has to do with evolution, which has to do with uh, attention, desire, dreams, memories, very much more complex uh, themes. Is there any last thing you'd like to say about about your book before we wrap up? So I decided to 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 read very carefully everything that the analogies and the things that they mentioned in the debate. And when they were discussing time, they ended up mentioning very frequently they they talked about um uh, things which were very modern at the time. So they talked about um, um, radio, they talked about cinema, and they also talked about microbes and microscopic, very microscopic um, um, particles. So one of the, 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 the higher ambitions of the book is not just to tell you the personal story between Einstein and Bergson, but to try to ask how it was that the 20th century itself ended up so divided, ended up so divided between physicists and philosophers, between psychology and um, um, psychological uh, ways of thinking and uh, physical ways of thinking, to the point that I, I, I gave the title of the, the last section of my book is titled Male and Female. And I noticed that the philosophical position of Bergson was frequently feminized and that he was seen as talking to lay people and that included women. And the contrary was going on for Einstein. He was talking um, largely to men and there were uh, observers who said, you know, this is great because if Bergson takes away the, the, the women from the, from the discussion, this will only help Einstein. So it ended up being a book about a major division of the 20th century that goes beyond the personal story, but that includes the material context in which that gave um, um, room for these big divisions. And that material context is one where you have microphysics, where you have radio becoming important, and when you when you have film and cinema and new forms of um, of visual media becoming important in a world. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We've loved having, having you, me. and this has been fascinating. Once again, that was Dr. Jemena Canales, and her book is called The Physicist and the Philosopher. Thanks again for listening, and join us next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.